Welcome to Real Life Church. For more information about our ministry and available resources, visit us online at reallifeankeny.org. Now let's join this week's service already in progress. Good morning again. What a great time of worship. What an amazing time of worship. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 52. The passage I'll be teaching from is in your bulletin as well. You can follow along there. We've been making our way through the chapters of Isaiah, uh, chapters 40 to 66, chapters 40 to the end of the book of Isaiah. And uh, such an amazing set of chapters uh, for a number of reasons. Gives us this picture of this God who is gigantic, glorious, majestic, um, out of this world, amazing in so many ways. And also a God who is incredibly merciful and gracious and comes to us. Another reason why it's so amazing is because over and over again, very explicitly, very, very clearly, it's pointing us to Christ. It's pointing us to the gospel. It's pointing us to our message, the message of Christians. Uh, And it does it in a very clear way. And we see that in every single chapter. So I'm going to read um, Isaiah 52, 1 to 12, and we will be on our way. Isaiah 52, 1 to 12, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day long my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. Verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we open up this passage, I pray you'd help us to see what's here. I pray your spirit would come and illuminate it to our minds and hearts. I pray that we would be pointed ultimately to Christ. I pray that we would be encouraged, challenged, 
changed by being in your presence and hearing your truth. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. I want to make no... uh, I don't want to mince words when I say that today I want you to be changed and I want to be changed as well. I want us to be changed by the message that we bear as Christians. Did you know that you and I carry a message and ultimately we communicate a message every single day of our lives? We communicate by the way that we speak and by the way that we live, no matter how We think we're doing it, or no matter whether or not we believe that we are, we actually are. And messages, the message we communicate, and messages abstractly shape the world. They shape the world, sometimes even more than events do. I can still remember the day, I was working down at Principal at the time, uh, September 11th, 2001, when when the news was on down in the the, uh, the workout room, and I saw one of the Twin Towers smoke coming out of it. And then not much, not much later, the other tower was hit. And not much later after that, both the towers came down. But as much as remembering that, I still remember the speech that our president gave that day, and then again the next day. And in the midst of all this chaos and all this fear that was striking our nation, he was able to bring both comfort and inspiration. My dad, before he passed away, he often would say he remembers exactly where he was when the message of John F. Kennedy's assassination came. Messages deeply impact us. Perhaps no leader of the 20th century knew the power of a spoken message more or better than Winston Churchill. He was a man for the hour, you might say. He was a leader of England during World War II, And just shortly after, before he left power, he was a leader of leaders. In fact, some historians have said of all leaders in all sectors of life, he was perhaps the greatest leader in the 20th century, not just politician, but leader in general. And one thing that made his leadership so impeccable and so strong was his ability to command a message and speak it forcefully and with inspiration and in a way that got it into the people's minds and hearts. No better example of this was his speech on May 8th, 1945. This was the day after victory in Europe had been secured. And he stood on a balcony before a group of clamoring, rejoicing people. And he said this, God bless you all. This is your victory. It is the victory of the cause of freedom in every land. In all our long history, we have never seen a greater day than this. Everyone, man or woman, has done their best. Everyone has tried. Neither the long years, nor the dangers, nor the fierce attacks of the enemy have in any way weakened the unbending resolve of the British nation. God bless you all. And he was done. Short message. But it stayed with people for decades, and probably even those who are still alive today, who were there that day, or who heard it broadcasted on the radio throughout the country, probably still remember that message. Well, today, the message of our text is very similar. It's not a message of disaster or of tragedy, but it's a message of hope and a message of victory. Isaiah prophesying to the Jewish exiles in Babylon has a message of victory, of God's victory. And it's a message that's meant to incite hope. It's a message of God's victory 
meant to incite hope. No doubt in the immediate generation of those who heard these words, they heard these words as meaning that God was going to bring them back to their, ta- to their city of Jerusalem, to their homeland. And indeed, God would do that. But it doesn't take much investigation to see that this passage has much more to do, excuse me, has a greater scope in view than merely ethnic Israel. It has a worldwide scope. It's hope for the whole world, for it points to the coming Messiah who will both restore Israel and be the savior of the entire world, both Jew and Gentile. And as I mentioned before, this is a constant theme in these chapters in Isaiah. There's this, there's this, um, there's this immediate context that is speaking to the, the Israelites, the Jewish people. And then there's this broader prophetic context in which it speaks of the coming of Jesus Christ and the good news that it is for the entire world. We see that again in this passage. Verse 10 says this, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the nations of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Not just Israel, the entire world, all the nations of the world will see the salvation of our God. It has worldwide, all nations type of implications to this message. It's no coincidence that this text, Isaiah 52, 1 to 12, butts right up against probably the most famous Old Testament prophecy concerning Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 is oftentimes quoted around Good Friday, and it's oftentimes quoted in other times, in other places, in other contexts. It's a very, very well-known Old Testament prophecy. Let me read you just a few verses, and no doubt many, and maybe most, maybe all here, have heard these verses before. Isaiah 53, 4 to 6 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the, Christian, the message of Isaiah 52 is a Christian message. It is your message. It is my message as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ. And did you know that Christianity is fundamentally tied to a message, not a method, but a message. It's called the gospel, right? It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's fundamentally tied to a message. In fact, I don't think it's an overstatement at all to say that Christianity has spread by means of a message. By means of a message. Not military might, not organization, not methods, but a message. Paul says in Romans 10, That this is God's intention. This is God's idea. This is God's purpose to spread Christianity from one corner of the earth to the other by means of a message. In fact, verse 7 of our passage here is quoted by Paul in Romans 10. As Paul gives us his logical steps or sequences of how people 
who should call in the name of Jesus actually do call in the name of Jesus. He says this in Romans 10, verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen? Right? We say, Amen. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Jesus, after his resurrection and before his return to heaven, said that the message that he had given to his people, this message that's supposed to shape the world, this message would be preached in all the nations before he returned again. And Christians since that time have seen their, they've seen their primary purpose as one of spreading this message. Their primary purpose in life is to spread this message, to get this message into the ears and then in the hearts of other people so that it saves them and transforms them and makes them different people. And I hope by God's grace this morning, we will be shaken or encouraged or challenged or whatever God needs to do so that we would take seriously the message that we bear and see our primary purpose as one of spreading this message. So, I want to look at one verse from Isaiah 52, and it's verse 7. And I want to see what verse 7 tells us about this message. What do we learn about the Christian message from Isaiah 52, 7? And I want you to think with me today, if you are a Christian here, You believe in Jesus. He is your Savior. He is your Lord. You have trusted in Him for salvation. You have bowed the knee to Him as Lord. This is not just some message. It's not even the Christian message abstractly, merely. This is your message. This is our message. This is our story. This is what we're about. So, what does Isaiah 52 7 tell us about the Christian message? First of all, it tells us the Christian message is good news. It's good news. And indeed, that's what gospel means, right? The Greek word evangelion means, when you break it apart, means good news. Gospel means good news. But I want to think about this and dig into this word, or this, these two words, and think for a moment about what this is saying. Of course, verse 7 says, it's good news. Good news about peace and good news about happiness. But it's good news. It's good news. First of all, it's news, not advice. The, God, the Christian message is news. It's not advice. You guys know what the difference is between news, news and advice, don't you? News is something that's happened. Advice is some counsel about how you can make something happen. News is something that's already happened. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous preacher in London in the 20th century, had great insight here. He said this. He said, advice is counsel about something that, is, that hasn't happened yet, but you can do something about it. News is a report about something that has happened, which you can't do anything about because it's been done for you 
and all you can do is respond to it. Advice is counsel about something that hasn't happened yet. And if you do certain things, you can make it happen. News, something you can't do anything about. It's already happened and it's been done for you. And all you can do is respond. Martin Lloyd-Jones follows up with this great illustration. He says, in a battle against an adversarial army, if the enemies have all been defeated and the mission is accomplished, the commanding officer sends back envoys with a report with good news of what has already been done. Those carrying the good news declare, live in and rejoice in the peace that has been done, excuse me, that has been accomplished for you. On the other hand, if, if the battle has not been won, the commanding officer sends for military advisors for advice on how to defeat the enemy with new strategies and the redoubling of efforts. The, the Christian message, brothers and sisters, is news of something that's already been done, something that's already happened. It comes to you as news. It's already happened on your behalf. And all you can do is respond to it. So the Christian message is good news. It's good. And it's all, excuse me, it's news. But we also need to recognize and know and have it sink into our minds and into our hearts that it is good news. It really is good news. It really is meant to make us rejoice and sing for joy and be happy and feel blessed and leave blessed here and live blessed. No matter what's going on around us, this is good news. Thank you. It's not bad news. It's not okay news. And it's not just news. Right? And this is a danger, especially if you've been in church long. This is a danger that we have. That the good news just becomes news. Yesterday's news. Or news from 2,000 years ago. But it's meant to stir up joy and passion because it's still good news. Because the implications are far-reaching in our lives, and it goes on into eternity. The message that some proclaim as the gospel, for some reason, doesn't sound like good news. And it ought to sound like really good news from us. It ought to sound like good news. It's, for some, it sound, as some are speaking it, it sounds at best like just news, and maybe old news, and unfortunately... Maybe even bad news. But Luke 2, when Jesus came into the world, when he was born of Mary, this is a Christmas passage, the angels appeared to the shepherds in the field and they said, Behold, we bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people because the Savior had come. Philip, in Acts chapter 8, when the disciples were scattered from Jerusalem, Because of persecution, they were scattered. And it says that Philip went down to Samaria and he was doing miracles, but he was also proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And it says, and there was much joy in that city. He's proclaiming the good news of Jesus. So it's news and it's good news. Some might say, why is it good news? What makes the gospel good news? Well, let's see what the text says. Because it tells us very clearly. 
It says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who says to Zion, excuse me, who publishes salvation, and who says to Zion, your God reigns. So it's good news of peace, happiness, salvation, and God's reign. It's good news of peace. It's good news of peace. Don't we live in a world with lots of trouble? Jesus said right before he left, he said, behold, you live in a world with trouble. He just said that. That's just the facts. Let's not look at everything through rose-colored glasses and pretend it's not trouble. There's trouble, right? Just even a, a, a cursory view of the Drudge Report on Friday. Here's some of the headlines. Liberia warns of global pandemic. Israel and Hamas, right, going at it. The southern border here in the United States, regardless of your, of your politics, it's just seems messy, right? Seems problematic. The ongoing enmity in Washington between liberals and conservatives. The Dow dropped 300 points. That was Friday morning. Okay, so probably from Thursday, I suppose. Headlines from Thursday. And then we have the 24-7 media on television and the internet to remind us of all these things all the time. And not only this, but closer to home, we have a hundred smaller but real personal problems that threaten our peace every single day. But these items, these global items and these personal items, they are peanuts compared to the real issue that is behind the lack of peace in men's and women's hearts. The real lack of peace has to do with something far deeper than whether or not our 401k is shrinking, whether or not I had the flu, whether I lost my job. It has to do with the real the reality of the enmity between God and men. The hostility between God and men. But this good news comes, which was announced by the angels again to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. What? Peace. And the peace that is offered in the gospel is the removal of this enmity. Is the removal of this enmity between men and God. Between you and God. Between your neighbor and God. And the enmity is there because of our sin against God. Because we have both a sinful nature. We're born with that. And because we follow that. And follow our desires until God changes us. And because of that there is enmity. Romans says that it's not only that we are lost. But we are actually enemies of God. We hate his rule over our lives, and therefore we are enemies of his. God is offering amnesty to lawbreakers through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus Christ. He is offering friendship to, or to enemies. Right? We, we need peace, and he's offering that to the world, the God who made you and the God who made me and the God that, that has been spurned by the entire world for generations 
has done everything necessary to make things right, to bring about peace, real peace, lasting peace. The kind of peace that if you don't have peace in any other area in life, but you have this peace, it just overshadows the other things. But the kind of peace that if you don't have this peace, you can have peace and every, every, everything can be going swell. You like that word, swell? Everything can be going totally swell. You don't have this peace. You don't have real peace. You don't have a lasting peace. God, through Jesus Christ, removes the mounting guilt hovering over lost sinners and declares them not guilty in his sight when they believe in Jesus Christ. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified, having been acquitted, having been declared by God because of what Christ did, not guilty, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the message is good news of peace. But it's more than that. It's also good news of happiness. It's good news of peace. It's good news of happiness. It's not just peace like, oh, I'm going to just kind of live in solitude. But it's good news that's meant to cause your heart to be happy. I love that, that Isaiah 52 says happiness instead of joy. Because I think sometimes people are like, well, happiness and joy, there's a huge chasm between these two things. I don't know. There can be, I suppose. But he just says there's good news of happiness. Happiness. God, through this Christian message, offers what every person most wants, which is happiness, which is joy. Blaise Pascal, who was a philosopher and mathematician from 500 years ago, I think, or so, said this. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever mean, different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step to it to this, but to this object. Excuse me. This is the, the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. C.S. Lewis, understanding this and seeing the treasures of joy offered in the Christian message in his essay called The Weight of Glory, said, We as God's creatures made in his image are far too easily pleased. We fool around with drink and sex and ambition and money and all these things and power when infinite joy is offered us in the gospel. And he says, like a child who can't imagine what vacation at the sea is like, we are content playing in mud puddles. The God who is the fountainhead of all life and joy will be your joy and the joy of every single person who will have him as their joy. He will be to you and to all who receive this message, joy unspeakable, and full of glory. He will be what is described in Matthew 13, 44. And we sing a song. Luke wrote a song regarding this verse. It's about a man. You guys, we're 
remember as I begin sharing about, about a man who is searching around in a field and he finds this treasure. Everyone say treasure. He finds this treasure. And in his joy, he's so excited about this treasure. He's so overflowing with joy about this treasure. So happy about this treasure. In his joy, it says, it says, in his joy, he goes and he sells everything else, all that he has, so he can have that money and buy the field that this treasure is in. He said, take my house, take my cars, Take my retirement plan, take everything in my savings account, whatever I can get rid of, however much money I can raise, or if I can raise enough money to get this field, I don't care if it costs me everything. I want that treasure. He is that treasure. And he will be that treasure. He will be that joy to everyone who receives him. First Timothy 1.11, I love the way Paul describes the gospel. He says, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Another word we could put in there instead of blessed. Happy God. The gospel of the glory of the happy God. The message of Christianity is the good news of the glory of our God who is eternally happy and is overflowing and is willing to share his happiness with his people. It's good news of happiness, but it's more than that too. It's good news of salvation our verse says, verse 7 says. It's good news of salvation. Your biggest problem has been solved. Sin against a holy God is what you and I are guilty of. And judgment for that sin is what you and I deserve. And the Christian message deals head on with that issue. Because that is central. That is the Central issue. Which is why Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because Jesus took our condemnation for us. There's none left for you and I if we trust in Christ. Finally, the good news, Christian message, is good news of ultimate truth because it announces the God who reigns. Love how it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. I read a portion of an article, um, probably Friday, about what people think about global warming. And in the same poll, same people, right? In the same poll, the same people were interviewed and asked questions. And some of the questions, the way that they answered, uh, would lead you to believe that they thought global warming was a big problem. And some of the other questions, same people, answered in such a way that you would think that they didn't think it was a big problem at all. And about halfway through the article, it said there was a headline for like the next paragraph. And it said, it's all in how you say it. In other words, the truthfulness of the message isn't as important as the way it's stated. That's not the way it is with Christian message, right? We don't want to just say nice flowery things to get the right kind of response. We want to speak the eternal truth of God. We want to speak God's true 
message. We want to speak, we want to declare God's words, the good news of Jesus Christ, God's final message to mankind. We want to speak that message. We don't want to just say nice things. And the Christian message is the message of ultimate truth because it is the central message about the God who reigns over all history and who entered into history through his son, Jesus Christ. Moreover, Jesus, who is God, right? Who is God, rose from the dead. You guys know that? He rose, you know that, right? He rose from the dead. He actually did that. There actually was a time and a place where he came up from the grave. And when he did that, he actually got together with his friends, his disciples, and he actually said these words, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. That's what Jesus said. He is the God who reigns. He is the God who sits enthroned in heaven, ruling and reigning. Paul said nearly the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says this, for he, speaking of Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He must reign, reign now, as enemies are being put under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So the message of the Christian faith is good news. Good news of peace. Good news of happiness. Good news of complete and final salvation. And good news that is absolutely true. We're not just saying flowery things. It is God's truth. Okay, main point number two, and these will go much quicker. The Christian message, okay, good news, right? It's good news. We unpack that. The Christian message must be communicated in words. It needs to be communicated in words. We should do other things as well, but it needs to be communicated and articulated with words. I don't, I can't, I couldn't find, I couldn't confirm who said this, so I'm not going to, I'm just going to say anonymously. But someone once said, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Sounds nice, right? It's just not biblical. And it's not that uncommon in our day for someone to say something similar to that and say, you know what, what's really important is that we live the gospel, not so much that we speak the gospel. To be sure, we should be zealous that our lives are lining up with what we say we believe. Absolutely, right? We don't want to speak one thing and do something completely different. That is the textbook definition of a hypocrite, okay? We don't want to be that, but nothing can substitute for words being, excuse me, words being spoken concerning our message of Jesus Christ. We must speak it. We must say it. We must try to say it as clearly as we can. 
God has ordained that his people speak this message and that when others hear this message, when we speak it, that they hear it and they believe in it and they are saved. They believe in the one that the message is about and they are saved. And so in verse 7, it says, it gives us three phrases, publishes peace. The New American Standard Bible just says, announces peace. Okay, so it's not talking about publishing like in a newspaper, although that's using words too, amen to that. But public, announcing peace publishes salvation. Again, announces salvation and good news where one says to Zion, your God reigns. Think about how you were saved. If you believe in Christ, think about how you got saved. Whether you can remember the exact moment or not, you and I and all of us here who believe in Jesus have some incredibly striking similarities. One massive thing in common. Yet you might have been younger than me or older than me or there are various ages. We were in different locations. Some were in church, some were at home, some were talking to an evangelist, some were talking to their mother, etc., right? But here's the point. One, one thing that we all have in common is that we heard the gospel message, right? It was, it was communicated to us in words. And we saw our desperate place and our sin, our need for a savior, our need to trust in Christ, and we did that. I remember uh, Alyssa shared with me about when she, she remembers very specifically her mother, Cindy, leading her in a prayer to receive Christ as a young girl when she heard Billy Graham on the radio, I believe, or maybe on television. Um, she remembers that, right? She heard the gospel. It was spoken to her. Maybe some were reading the Bible. They'd heard things in the past, and they're reading the Bible, and all of a sudden something clicked, and they believed. The most important things in life come through communicated words, right? There are some things, in fact, that just cannot be communicated adequately without words. Gestures are wonderful, but they're wholly inadequate. A touch is great, but it can be ambiguous, right? A facial expression can be wonderful, but all these things cannot take the, cannot take the place of the primacy of words in communication. Think about this. When a man proposes to a woman, how does he do that without words? Can he? Seems like any way that you might try to do that would be inadequate, right? When your child was born, no doubt you want to take pictures and send pictures, but you had to tell someone, right? Or think of some amazing experience you have had in life. Whether it was an experience, athletic experience or relational experience or an experience with God, an experience out in nature, whatever it is, think of an experience you've had and you were dying to tell someone about it. It had to be communicated. It had to be spoken. God has given the gift of language and of words. And it's not hard to see that because he's given us a book. 
right? That was written in languages and has lots of words in it. And we call this God's word. The Bible is God's word. So let us certainly be those who are seeking to live consistently with the message we believe. But let us also seek to speak this message to others for their eternal benefit. Number three, the message, the Christian message must be carried by a messenger. Again, verse seven, the very first phrase says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him. No doubt Isaiah is drawing from the ancient way of how a, an out, the outcome of a battle would be communicated to the homeland. If a king or a commanding officer would take his army out and they were fighting against an enemy army and they defeated the enemy, they didn't have Skype, they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have email, they didn't have text, they didn't have telegram, you know, Alexander Graham Bell style. They couldn't do any of that. So what they would do is they would send a runner back. They would send someone back and say, you, Johnny, go back and tell them what's happened. Go back and tell them of the good news of what has happened here on this battlefield. The message, the Christian message, must be carried by a messenger or messengers. Not one, but thousands, millions of messengers. In our day of technology, Siri will not do Right. In fact, one time my kids and I were messing around on my phone and we we're asking Siri about Jesus, you know, just being silly. And Siri responds to questions like that in some interesting ways. She it says, my policy is the separation of spirit and silicon. Or another way she responds is humans have religion. I have silicon. OK. Siri will not do. Technology is beautiful. It's amazing. It's a great way to get the message out in a broad way, but it requires messengers. An angel will not do. What? An angel will not do? No, an angel will not do. It requires a human messenger. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is praying to God. He's crying out to God. He's seeking God. And all of a sudden, an angel from God appears to him. Do you know what the angel said to him? Go get Peter so he can share a message with you. Isn't that amazing? Go get Peter because he's going to speak a message to you. So, of course, Cornelius sends some of his men to get Peter from Joppa, city, town close by, or, or a few days' journey away, and came back, and Peter proclaimed the message of the gospel to him. Who did Jesus send to his disciples to let them know that he was alive? He didn't just send, he could have sent a word that just was carried by the wind in some mystical way and hit the ears of people. No, he sent a person. He sent Mary to them. God could have decided to do it some other way, I suppose. He could have published words in the sky so everyone could see it. Right? Or he could speak audibly to each and every person. Or he could produce some motion picture to broadcast on everyone's televisions, or maybe even better, in the sky, or maybe just right out in front of people's faces. I mean, he could do whatever he wants. But he has decided to use human messengers to carry this message. 
You ever wonder why it says, or do you wonder why it says, how beautiful are the feet? How beautiful are the feet? It's because the messenger embodies the message. The beauty of the message is all over the messenger. And the feet is the means by which they're bringing it. And their feet are beautiful. The messenger or the runner, from the example I gave you earlier, that the commanding officer or king sends, they were there on the battle scene. They saw the victory. They saw it happen. And they were sent back. And in their joy, they shared it. The beauty of the feet has to do with the beauty of the message and the beauty of bringing the message to others. Every other religion sends military advisors. Remember from earlier what I said? We have news, not advice. Every other religion sends military advisors to tell people, how to achieve salvation, how to achieve it, how to earn it, or to tell people how to achieve peace or how to achieve happiness or how to achieve enlightenment or how to achieve wholeness. Christ does not send military advisors. He sends messengers. Because Christian messengers have news not advice. And we have good news at that. Let me ask you a series of questions. And don't, you don't have to answer. Do you believe that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross outside Jerusalem? And that he actually bore your sins in his body on that tree? He actually bore your sins He actually, in his body on the tree, bore your sins. And not only that, but that God, in that act of Jesus, was reconciling not just you, but the entire world to himself by the cross. Do you believe that by his offering, Jesus has brought peace and it has come to you? And that happiness is yours because you have Christ now. And that eternal salvation belongs to you. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the grave on the third day? I mean, there was a morning, that first Easter morning. There was a time in the morning when the grave clothes, when that that still body in grave clothes started to move. And it came off. And he walked out. Do you believe that happened? It's not just some ethereal spiritual thing. Do you believe that actually happened? And he gave death a fatal blow by his resurrection. Do you believe that he really does have all authority in heaven and on earth? Do you believe that by hearing and believing this message, people really go from death to life? They really are saved from the wrath to come. They really are are saved from eternal punishment. Do you believe that Christ is coming again and that every person will stand before him in judgment? And that the righteous will go away into everlasting joy and bliss and, dare I say, ecstasy in God's presence. And the wicked will be cast away into everlasting torment. If you answered yes to these questions or in your mind you're thinking, yes, I believe those things. 
then the reality is you are a messenger with a message. You are, all of us are. We all are who believe and are convinced of that truth. And the amazing thing is your message is far greater than the one given by Churchill, right? By Winston Churchill, which spoke of a great victory for Europe and for England from the tyranny of Adolf Hitler in Germany. It's a much greater message than that. For the message you carry is not meant to define an era or merely inspire a nation. I say merely, but obviously merely inspire a nation, but is meant to shape the entire world. And the reason why it shapes the entire world is because it shapes the eternal destinies of every person on planet Earth. This is the message that must go to the ends of the earth before Jesus Christ comes. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him and her who brings good news. What makes your feet beautiful is the beauty of the message you bear and that your feet are set to moving in order to bring it. It is good news for the whole world of peace, happiness, and salvation. It's the good news that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ reigns. So as a messenger, believe it. You, all of us, believe it, rejoice in it, live in it, and speak it to those around you who need to hear it. I would love nothing more than to be known. And I have lots of, gro- I have lots of room to grow in this area, but I'd love to be known as someone with beautiful feet. I would love to be known as a church, that we are a church with a lot of beautiful feet, right? We got this message. We're embodying it. We know it. We love it. We rejoice in it. We sing about it and we speak it. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see and know more deeply the beauty of this message that we bear. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to live in it. Help us to speak it to the many people we know who need to hear it. Perhaps even tomorrow, Father, the one person we have the opportunity to speak in depth with who needs to know Christ. I pray that there would be many here, men, women, and children, young and old, who have beautified feet. In fact, that we would be a church known for our beautiful feet. And we pray this all that the fame of Jesus Christ would spread. And we pray this in his powerful name. Amen.